Nipples kill demo parties. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Super Mario sells for 600000 Project Deluge dumped PlayStation secrets. Classic Usborne books now available online. And is America too sensitive for the demo scene? All this in our Community Question of the Week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, between the two of us, I bet we have some pretty valuable stuff in our gaming collections. I, for one, have three, count them, three copies of Professional Ski Simulator for the ZX Spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Neil, what crazy valuable items are among you in the cave right now? Well, I'll give you at least one pound for each of those copies. (laughs) Yes. John. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's rare and valuable stuff. It depends whether you're talking about intrinsic value or monetary value. I know we're on the subject of monetary value here, but there are things that are far more valuable to me intrinsically from a nostalgia point of view than there are things monetary here. Mm -hmm, Definitely, definitely. But from a money point of view, it's, it's that LucasArts game you know that's expensive to me that's 70 pounds on ebay or it's that sam coupe that's a thousand pounds on ebay that's expensive to me and that's a big commitment but six hundred thousand pounds that's not expensive john that's insane and that's (laughs) that's what we're talking about today isn't it and imagine how many pairs of atari virtual sneakers you could buy with that much money that was the first thing that came to mind for me too i was (laughs) how can i flip this mario and get some nfts well I'm going to have another rummage through all of my totes after hearing about this latest auction. So apparently, back in 1986, uh, an anonymous seller purchased Super Mario Brothers as a Christmas gift and promptly forgot about it for, I guess, about 35 years. So uh, before we go any further, Neil, who does that? Who buys a Christmas gift, a video game Christmas gift, not some stocking stuffer, but, you know, a $50 video game in 1986, which is like 100 bucks in today's money, and just forgets about it? Uh, have you ever done anything like that, Neil? Yeah, I, I, well, yes and no. I mean, it, in the context of video games, no, absolutely not. I only forget about things that are convenient for me to forget <laughs> about. So, you know, that tin of paint when I should be painting a room or that check that I should have posted but never, ever a video game. It's just too exciting. You don't forget about them. I agree. I agree. Well, anyway, I guess our intrepid Christmas present buyer came across the game in the bottom of his desk drawer, which I guess is where it had set for 35 years, and he gave it to WADA. WADA is a collectible grading service. Uh, he gave it to them to get it graded and slabbed. So I guess this, this begs another question. Uh, Neil, where do you stand on this whole slabbing business? Do you think it's good for the retro gaming hobby to have a service like that? Or, um, you know, or does making a game virtually unplayable uh, just sort of take the, the fun out of a collection? So by slabbing, do you mean those clear plastic coffins that people put their games in? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The old hand solo treatment. Um, I, I think <laughs> because you can't open a slab, I guess they, they encase it in this special plastic called Lucite. It even sounds like something from Star Wars. Um, you can't open it up again without it being evident that, that you've tampered with it. So it makes trading you know, valuable objects easier, whether it's coins or comics or video games, because you don't have to do a full inspection on condition. Uh, the company doing the slapping evaluates and provides a condition grade. Usually it's on a scale of 1 to 10 for video games and, and baseball cards, comics, things like that. 
Hmm, sure. Okay, I've got you. I've got you. Well, in the case of this particular video game, Super Mario Brothers, selling for six hundred thousand dollars, you know, that's more than twice the value of my house. <laughs> so I'm not going to put that in a clear acrylic case. That's going in a bank vault for yeah. me. Um, you know, protecting games, it is at the forefront of my mind at the moment, John, because I'm working on a public exhibition space and the emphasis of this space is on hands-on because games have to be used and enjoyed and they can't be used without being touched. And I think it's a bit of an impossible question to answer really because I could buy multiple copies uh, of each item for hands-on purposes, but the day will come when the supply dries up or when it becomes too expensive to be feasible. And then what do you do? Do you encase it? Do you put it in a slab? Do you put it in the wall like a work of art and put a rope in front of it and tell everyone to stand back? Do you create a replica? Do you let people touch it only wearing gloves? Yeah, it's yeah. John. It, it, it's quite a conundrum. For me personally, you know, I'm firmly in the camp that video games are meant to be played. Uh, it's an interactive medium. It's different than a work of art, in which case, you know, it's, it's there to be looked at. But at this point, I mean, especially with hardware, we're talking about thin plastic that's 40 or 50 years old. I mean, it's, you know, some of the mm -hmm. oldest stuff is almost 50 now, and it just wasn't meant to last this long. Nobody working on the, uh, the assembly line of those old Pong units or whatever ever thought that in, you know, in 2021 people would still be using these things, and especially handled by so many, well, hands. Uh, I guess in a perfect world, you'd have items that you wouldn't touch and keep on display and then a second set for public use but keeping two of everything just isn't feasible for most people yeah it's a difficult balance that i and, and many others are going to have to figure out over time personally i quite like the idea of gloves because it adds that kind of drama of the experience of touching something like it's a precious work of art or a, a centuries-old book Mur murder gloves like the... neil <laughs> yeah something like that um but, uh, you know, given the condition of this game that sold for so much money, I think I found the perfect storage solution. It's right there in the story. Lock it in a desk drawer and forget about it. Yes. <laughs> what do you think about the idea? Of, yeah, I think that's perfect. But, um, yeah, what, what do you think about the idea of taking something that's meant to be played with, like a video game, and essentially rendering it useless except for collectability purposes, John? You know, it's, it's people's stuff. Just, you know, a lot of the, you know, controversies within the retro gaming community come down to people having a problem with what other people are doing with their stuff. And, and for me personally, hmm. if you own it, do what you will. Do what you will. Just like sports cards and comic books, video games, they've matured into a fully collectible asset class. I mean, some people, it sends a shiver down their spine to hear about video games as an asset class. But when you've got video games selling for $600,000, that's what they are. Um, it's worth noting that even though you can have your game slabbed, it doesn't mean that you should. Um, you know, we're living in a time period where the market dictates value with things like eBay and online auctions. And people are making investments in video games just like people invest in art and, dare I say, NFTs. So, yeah, it's it sold for 600000 bucks. That's six times the record amount of the highest ever paid the highest amount ever paid for a video game related collectible so we've gone from about a hundred thousand all the way up to six hundred thousand that's in a way it makes sense i mean if you're expecting a, a, a video game to be ultra valuable super mario brothers is it's you know it's the home video game of record for for much of the world and as the saying goes stuff sells for what the market will pay so 
Neil, I know that for you and for many of your fellow country folk, uh, the NES wasn't really a factor in your youth. Uh, you're not a, you're not a huge factor. I've been doing some Nintendo reading as of late. I was reading uh, David Chef's book, Game Over. It's really remarkable just how little attention Nintendo paid the, Europe, the European market in the 80s, especially in the era of the NES. They had a little Nintendo of Europe office, but everything came out you know, much, much after the fact, and, and they, they just didn't consider it a valuable enough market to pour a lot of resources into for whatever reason. So Neil, I ask you if you could focus on the games of your youth, if you could choose an 80s UK or European computer game to slab at auction, which one do you think would fetch the highest amount? Oh, good question. I mean, we did have the NES yeah. over here. It wasn't quite as large a cultural part of our video game history. And I think that is a huge part of the value of this Super Mario Brothers sale. Mm -hmm. It's the cultural uh, impact that that game had, uh, especially in the US market. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, in terms of value, that's usually attached to scarcity or scarcity of condition and influence. Uh, and that's... Mm, yeah, a couple I can think of. One that's valuable to the completionist, so the real hardcore collector, would be DJ Puff on the ZX Spectrum. So if you want a complete set of Codemasters Spectrum games from the 8-bit era, that's the most difficult one to get hold of and the rarest, DJ Puff. And it goes for over £100. We're mm. nowhere near the $600,000 mark, but over £100 for a single little cassette box, just like your Pro Ski Simulator you were joking <laughs> about, which is a lot of money. Um, but keeping in with the Mario story, I think from Europe, there can only be one choice for me. It's the Great Gianni Sisters, which was a blatant <laughs> ripoff of Super Mario. The main character was called Maria. <laughs> and uh, it's the English version of the game that came out for just a few weeks before it was pulled. No legal action was taken, as I understand it, but Nintendo just put the pressure on them and they said, OK, it's not worth fighting this battle. So the game was pulled off the shelves. A new copy sold in recent years on eBay for $400, just over $400, which, again, peanuts compared to Super Mario. It was developed by German developers Time Warp Productions. So that's what I'll put forward as my European candidate. But I will be interested to know if any listeners can come up with some big, big value items. For yeah, the European yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's there's got to be games out there that are that 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 maybe not $600,000, but I will be interested in hearing what the listeners have to say about that. So. If you're interested in seeing the bidding history of this historic auction, make sure you check out the link in the show notes. And a big thank you to subreddit user Starcade2084 for suggesting this story for us to discuss. John, another retro console loving group has taken an almighty dump this week. Ooh. More than 700 unreleased demos, games and prototypes for the Sony PlayStation 2 have been shared thanks to something called Project Deluge. This is the work and effort of a group called Hidden Palace, and they're a bunch of devoted retro enthusiasts who are doing a great job in preserving this corner of gaming history. The 16 or so members of the group have access to a huge stack of CDRs and DVDs. Uh, I think somebody perhaps won them on an auction or a clearance, uh, and this one benefactor has given them access to this stack of CDs and DVDs, and they're just working through them to assess if they contain something unique, unreleased, or playable to share with the world. On the discs, we have such things as review releases for magazines and websites to score, gold releases, that's the final code before the game goes to production, prototypes, often of the same game at different stages of development, and games that were never released. For example, I saw in the list, in the list Aliens, which appears as a tech demo, uh, perhaps used to pitch the game for potential funding, but it never came out as a game. It never went any further than that. 
So, John, what do you make of this? Do you value this kind of work? Do you have an interest in spending your time sifting through to find nuggets of gaming law lost? Does this uh, tickle your fancy? Yeah, it does. You know, as somebody with a graduate degree in digital library management from the UK's own University of Sheffield, um, I'm a big proponent of preservation in all of its forms. I, I just love the fact that people uh, make the effort to collect, uh, you know, these these things and, and keep them safe so people can go back and reference them in the future. Um, it's clear from the behavior of a lot of big development houses that they neither have the desire, the time, or the resources to do this themselves. There are so many stories of, you know, when companies go out of business, you know, they just take the file cabinets and throw them in the dumpster. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, people people happen upon them and then save them. So I'm really thankful there are groups like the Hidden Palace out there making sure none of these early releases are lost to time. Uh, that said, personally, I, I've got so many legitimately released games yet to play. I don't know that I'm ready to dive into the weeds of pre-production versions of games. How about you, Neil? Yeah, yeah, I very much admire the work being done. And I'd encourage anyone with the motivation to help them out and to go and find out more but given my own workload and my own stack of games that I've yet to play like you I'm relying on those keen gamers to sift through the dirt and find the traces of gold and share them on YouTube perhaps with us John so we can see what's what's happening there uh, but if I find myself interviewing a game developer and we talk about a specific game some of these would be great to illustrate the development of a game through different stages of it and decisions made in its creation. So um, I'm very grateful that it exists and is being preserved for that reason as much as anything else. John, do you remember when studios used to, they would sometimes release a making of VHS tape or, or Betamax, depending on what your preference was, and you might get it on a magazine like, like a Mean Machine magazine. I used to love those little insights, just those little snippets from behind the scenes of the gaming world. Did you ever get any of those videos? You know, I think that this is more of a UK thing. Uh, you guys, your magazine culture was so much more mature than ours was in terms of getting, you know, extra goodies, whether it was cover discs or cover tapes or things like that. Um, in the U.S., I just never saw a lot of that stuff. And it's just because, you know, our magazines, we, we just aren't really a, a nation of magazine readers, I guess. Uh, you know, like the, in the U.K., you guys were spoiled with choice in terms of the quality, not just the quality of the writing, but the quality of the paper and everything like that. When I started importing magazines like Retro Gamer from the U.K., I was blown away by just the, the quality of the binding and the paper. So we didn't really have that in the United States, at least that I saw. Um, one thing that I did get uh, as a Nintendo Power subscriber, I was actually mailed a videotape uh, when the N64 was in development. Of course, then it was known as the Ultra 64. And uh, Nintendo sent out this VHS tape chock full of renders, game previews, uh, most of which, uh, if I remember correctly, never actually saw the light of day. But in those early days of console 3D, especially as somebody like me that didn't have a PC, uh, seeing those 3D renders and seeing those games, it was like looking into the future. Mm, it really was. It really was. And in terms of magazine quality, I still like to go into a newsagent and pick up Edge magazine. I find that one is just top, top quality mm -hmm. compared to the others. The quality of the binding in the print, I still love that that exists. Um, the PlayStation 2, that's a system that I bought on launch and I was very fond of despite waiting for what felt like an age for new AAA titles to appear after the console launch. But if I could ask for a dump of unreleased prototypes to try out, it would be undoubtedly for one of the shorter-lived systems where developers saw the, the hardware sales were fading and then they walked away before they really saw the full potential of the system. They just didn't take a risk on it. So 
I'd love to see 3DO prototypes, CDTV prototypes, unreleased Jaguar games, perhaps. They would be of the most interest to me. I mean, what would Alien vs. Predator 2 have been like on the Jag? Um, there was a cancelled version of Microprose's Formula 1 Grand Prix for the Jaguar. Love to have seen how that ran. Uh, there was also Gunship 2000. There was talk of the need for speed for the Jag. All games planned for that system. I I'd love to see how far they could have pushed the Jaguar uh, and if games like Need for Speed could have competed in any way whatsoever against, say, the 486 version mm. or the 3DO version on the Jag. Um, yeah, I, w I would love to see that. If there was a system that you could cherry-pick and find an undiscovered archive of titles all dumped and ready for you to sift through, John, what would you go for? I would love to see, like you said, the, the Jaguar stuff uh, because that that system so much potential and so little execution uh you know it would be great if they could have given somehow just granted the jag another couple of years lease on life just to see what what could have come out for it but uh for me i think a, a system like the cd32 is, is sort of in the same camp uh the cd32 of course did have a much larger library than say the, the jag but uh, a lot of those early games were just kind of you know ports of existing amiga titles or whatever um i'm sure that there was lots of things there were lots of things in the pipeline uh the, I, I think the studios probably were planning on releasing over the a course of years and the cd32 of course had uh, lots of problems not being able to be sold in america etc and um and no one could have foreseen that people thought the cd32 would be a much bigger hit than it actually was so i bet there's still some unreleased assets and maybe even a few uh, more fully fleshed out games that are still waiting to be found for that console yeah, the CD32 was unique in that, that it had that Akiko chip, which mm -hmm. no other uh, Amigas had. So it would have been a, nice to see some titles make use of that right. and see how that could have been leveraged. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we support projects like Project Deluge and their PS2 dump, then maybe it will encourage others to take a look at their own stack of developers' CDs or cartridges that are rotting away in their archives and encourage game studios to uh, help preservation and be a, a little bit prouder of their heritage perhaps if there's the demand there for it here's hoping links to find that archive and more on the story can be found in today's show notes neil the time has finally come a month ago we announced the rgb to hdmi adapter drawing from retrorewind.ca and it's time to pick a winner now, before we do, just to recap, Retro Rewind is a fantastic place to order new hardware for both the C64 and the Amiga. From cap kits to diagnostic carts, the folks at Retro Rewind have all the hardware you need to keep your vintage Commodore machine performing at its best. Now, you might remember we tasked entrants in this contest to tweet about where they listen to This Week in Retro. So we got 27 entries into the contest, and after putting all of the names in over at random.org and giving them a shuffle, I'm proud to announce the winner, Neil. The winner is Adam Pig. Adam Pig, Yay, who well tweeted, done, I like to listen to This Week in Retro in my Renault 5 on the way to work. Now, Neil, tell me about, <laughs> I don't know anything about Renault or their line of automobiles. <laughs> Would you call this, is this like a Mercedes E-Class? Oh, I love the way you say Renault. It sounds posh. The the Renault 5, um, yes, it was a, a low-cost, very boxy car. I had one for a spell really? in the uh, late 90s. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those cars that, um, you know, was ideal as a first car because it was very cheap to get hold of, very cheap to insure. Mm. Um, small engine, cheap to run. Uh, although there was this 
monstrous one in the 80s which was um uh, had big flared wheel arches and an insane engine so it was one of the the original 80s hot hatches as well oh yeah so it got, okay uh, yeah it became a bit of a legend in that way anyway great way to listen to this week, week in retro adam so uh, i heartily approve of that method of listening <laughs> all right well yeah. congratulations congratulations and adam i'll be in touch soon to get your details now neil as we all know if you came of age during the 80s and were lucky enough to own a computer it was almost certainly more than a machine you just plugged games into uh, back then computers were really meant to be used they were meant to be poked and prodded and the fun was to be had in uncovering all of the secrets of the machine now neil do you remember your first interaction with a micro when you got it home yeah, my first interaction was pressing the shift and enter key on my Amstrad CPC, which prompted you to press play on the tape and then press any key. And with the Amstrad CPC, the tape deck was integrated and it would only spin the tape up when the computer told it to. And then it would automatically stop loading, even if the play key, uh, the play button was still pressed down on the tape deck. So that was great for multi-load games. So you didn't overshoot the loading point. But there was something really magical in that interaction about pressing a key on the keyboard and the tape deck mechanically springing into life. I really loved that satisfying connection. It's hard to explain. I'm sure you can understand it, John. Um, I, I loved it. And that game, that first game, would have been Roland on the Ropes. Yeah. How about you? Well, I mean, I do understand. If people, you know, I think especially kids today, uh, they, they don't know the thrill of pressing a button on a keyboard and having something happen on the screen like you are actually control in control of what's going on on a TV uh, that was that was a totally novel concept back then and of course now it's it's the most humdrum thing ever so um, I but yeah I definitely got a similar thrill working with with my first computer which was a, an Atari 1200 XL uh, now even though we had a tape deck for that computer uh, it also came with a disk drive, and of course you had the cartridge slot. So the, the the tape drive didn't get a whole lot of use, except for when I you know was busting out jams from audio cassettes through the TV speakers, which my parents loved. They loved when I cranked up my hot jams. Uh, but <laughs> one of my first interactions with the computer itself was this book my dad gave me called Kids in the Atari. Uh, this was full of little programs and lessons that taught you how to access various parts of the computer's capabilities through BASIC. And uh, I also had some photocopied editions of Antic Magazine. Uh, that's right, in, in, <laughs> in the U.S., even, even the magazines were pirated uh, that contained type-in <laughs> programs, most of which I spent the afternoon typing in and then staring at the screen in bewilderment when they didn't work. Uh, Neil, did you ever have a single type-in game work correctly on the first go? <laughs> no, never. Never on the first attempt. No, no. I would try it on my Amstrad. And the thing is, I had no idea that you could actually save what you were typing in mm -hmm. back to tape. I had no idea at all. So for me, it was this mission to type it in as quickly and as accurately as you could. Hope for no power cuts in the process and hope that it ran at the end of it. I wish somebody had told me I could just type in save and <laughs> write it back to tape and <laughs> right. carry on the next day. But, you know, we did these things in almost absolute isolation. Mm -hmm. you, you, it was very difficult to learn these things. Um, and after a lot of typing and debugging, the result, if it ran, would be an incredibly simple game. The juice of it was really worth the squeeze in terms of the result. But it wasn't really about that. If you managed to understand something new or pick up on some tips in the process of writing it and further your programming knowledge just by one or two commands in each game, then um, that's where the value really came from, I think. 
And often gaining that understanding was essential because the listings themselves would have errors in them. You could never fully trust a magazine listing to be entirely correct. And you couldn't wait a month, or at least I couldn't wait a month without turning off my computer for the apology and the correction to be printed in the following issue. I wonder how many magazine sales that, that alone spurred, you know? People just wanted to get those corrections. <laughs> Um, so in addition to Kids in the Atari, I also checked out a bunch of books from our public library. Uh, we had, a, I wouldn't call it a huge computer section, but uh, by the time that I was using uh, my Atari, which uh, you know, by all accounts was five or six years after the, uh, the 8-bit systems had become obsolete, uh, the, the library had managed to acquire a lot of books with these type-in programs. Um, and uh, you know, even if you typed in the game correctly, you had to use a fair amount of imagination to kind of square what you were seeing on the screen with that full color art on the book's cover that made it seem like you were going to code the most amazing game imaginable. Neil, did you ever saunter over to your public library to check out a book or two of type-in games? Yeah, I loved it. That's the exact reason why I went to the library um, back then. You know, I'd, I'd go there, I'd trawl the science fiction section for H.G. Wells books, and then I'd trawl the computer section for typing books, specifically for my Amstrad CPC which there was never one for it. <laughs> it. It always seemed to be the ZX Spectrum or the Commodore 64. Sometimes the BBC Micro would get a book dedicated to it. And these books would all be mixed in with massively out of date books about mainframes and about uh, the future of computing as published in the 1970s. Yeah, I remember you know, this. Really, really <laughs> out of date books, you know. You're gonna have your tea served to you by a robot by the year 1998. <laughs> all these fabulous pictures so I, i'd seek out the um the usborne books we had those there uh, and um look at the pictures of what you were intended to code and i'd have to try and interpret the basic commands and rewrite them in a way that my amstrad would compile but honestly it was a losing battle i very rarely got them to work yeah yeah well it's these types of books that are the subject of this story so uh, Neil, there was one computer book publisher in the 80s that stood head and shoulders above the rest when it came to getting kids pumped up about programming, and that's Usborne. Uh, Usborne books were part comic book, part textbook, and part programming guide that demonstrated to its readers some pretty complex concepts in computing, yet did so in such a user-friendly way that you couldn't help learning something. Uh, Neil, did you have any of the Usborne books growing up? Yeah, yeah, as I mentioned, we had them in the library, um, and those were the exact ones that I made a beeline for because they weren't too thick, they weren't too daunting, they were illustrated with lovely hand drawings, and they were often themed. So, for example, there was one all about creepy games, mm. there was one about fantasy games with um, a knight on the cover art fighting a dragon. You know, they really got your imagination going, oh, I can create this, I can fight dragons on my computer. Um, but, yeah, normally you just end up with two blocks fighting each other from <laughs> the other side of the screen very simple been a random crash and then it's over <laughs> and then it's over yeah but you know i do remember them very very vividly um how about you john did you have easy access to these books no unfortunately i didn't um looking through some of them now i wonder if i'd been able to uh, stick with my game designing dreams a little longer uh, if i would have had access to a few of these uh, knocking around to give me some motivation when i was trying to puzzle out the walls of text in the traditional programming guides that I, that I got from my library that, that weren't nearly as interesting to look at. And uh, of course, that's what this week's story is about. Uh, if you had these books when you were growing up and you'd like to share them with your kids, now you can. Uh, thanks to a tip from Captain Midnight 264 on our show subreddit and via a story from Hackaday in the show notes, 
there are a substantial selection of 1980s coding books available in full on Usborne's website. Uh, everything from the popular battle games, fantasy games, and space games books to the nuts and bolts guides of uh, basic and machine code. All of those books are there. Nice, nice. Um, it's got my mind racing just thinking about these, John, because I'm thinking that maybe I can use OCR to, to copy the code out of these scans. I can just paste them into an emulator. I don't have to type a single word of this code now and finally run them, assuming there's no errors in the listings, <laughs> uh, and see if they live up to those hand-drawn illustrations that promise so much. So uh, I think that's my weekend sorted, John. That sounds like a fantastic idea. <laughs> um, now, it's worth noting that Usborne didn't leave the building at the conclusion of the 1980s. Uh, they actually won the award for Children's Publishers of the Year last year and uh, continue to make books about computers for young readers to this day, including coding books on Python and Scratch. So if you have an, an aspiring coder at home, uh, why not check out what Usborne has to offer and uh, light that programming fire in the next generation. Our final story today is a question of culture, John, and a very interesting one too. What's acceptable in the US and not in Europe and vice versa? When is something offensive and when is it art? This is a, a very topical question off the back of the 2021 Revision Demo Party, which took place last weekend. Now, Revision is a weekend-long gathering. Um, it happens at Easter of every year, and this year it was an online-only event because of the pandemic. And it was streamed all weekend, a weekend of competitions where the greatest demo coders, musicians, short filmmakers, photographers, all sorts of people all come together to celebrate the demo scene. Their work covers everything from modern day PCs to retro computer platforms. The Commodore Amiga, a favorite of ours, gets its own category, such as its popularity still among the demo makers and the party viewers. So it's just a fabulous weekend of old and new. And just last week, we were talking about how UNESCO had recognized the demo scene in Germany for its intangible contribution to cultural heritage. The demo scene had officially become legit and culturally important in the eyes of UNESCO. So what happened next? Well, it all came crashing to a halt at the weekend, John. Halfway into the party on Saturday night, the stream came to an abrupt end. It peaked with over 6,000 people watching on the Friday night and lots were enjoying the competition entries on the Saturday when it ended and the Revision Party channel on Twitch vanished. Twitch had banned Revision. With no warning, it was just gone. Mm. <laughs> So, was that? I mean, was that it? Did the party over? Go home, guys. <laughs> well, it may well have been, but this is the demo scene we're talking about. So, you know, these guys would put the A team to shame when it comes to improvising. <laughs> the The organisers put out a message on Twitter to to advise what had happened. They were still trying to figure it out because all they knew is was that they'd been banned. They didn't know why. And then up stepped the Chaos Computer Club and offered to host the party. And within 30 minutes, Revision was back up and running on an alternative platform, which actually gave me a better quality of stream than I was getting on Twitch. And it also meant that they were unshackled from the terms and conditions of streaming on Twitch. And it's that that what we think was the cause of the ban, those terms and conditions. So a little earlier on the Saturday, there was a short film and photography competition at Revision in which there was an image of a lady sat near a pond. It was a very arty photo, beautifully taken. And there was a tasteful glimpse of nipple, John. Mm. And then a little bit later in, in the vid video about, uh, there's a video about partying on the beach, lots of demo party goers 
with their case of beers having fun on the beach one of the revelers dropped their shorts and playfully mooned at the camera so it would appear that these actions are against the twitch terms of service and so the unesco cultural heritage approved demo party stream was banned <laughs> now this is twitch's house is their rules and we have to play by them but it did seem a little bit harsh when you consider some of the other content that we see on the platform such as naked body painting or fitness classes wearing little more than a piece of string so you know so long as that nipple's covered up it seems to be all good or that that bare butt is covered up it's all good now john knowing the u.s culture as you do and twitch of course being a u.s based service what's the deal with the nipple is it offensive is this a u.s thing Am I jumping to conclusions incorrectly? How does it feel to you knowing this story? Well, you know, this it's a it's a complicated story that's very easy to make simple. You know, it's it's easy to, to craft a narrative that just say, yeah, the U.S. is more prudish than Europe. The prudish U.S. service shut this down because there was a glimpse of a nipple or a butt or something like that. But um, the, the reality is that, uh, you know, 100% of the controversy in the story is based on conjecture. Uh, the, the facts are that Revision's account was banned, but as of this recording, we don't actually know the reason. It could have been because of the nipple. It could have been because of the bare buttocks. Uh, but uh, <laughs> let's 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 and let's go with the narrative that that this ban was as a result of one of these two things. Do I think that sure. either is offensive? Of course not. But you know the reality is is that Twitch. Uh, is a global service that you know that streams content to all over the world you know there are all kinds of different cultures that are tuning in with all sorts of and and they i my guess is that i don't you know i had a look at their um their sexual content policies which they have probably one of the most extensive guides on what is and what is not acceptable that i've ever seen on a website and i can only assume that you know they they don't put this kind of effort in unless there is money to be made somewhere down the line so maybe to stream in not only the us but you know in, in lots of the other countries the non-european countries that 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 are out there that, that twitch services maybe you have to have this sort of guideline just to keep all of the investors happy just to keep all of the the you know the customers happy one thing from their perspective i guess that the problem is developing an automatic content moderation system that differentiates between you know what we would consider artistic nudity and flat out sexual exploitation and this is all on a platform in which 40 percent of viewers are under 18 or minors you know twitch yeah. is hugely popular with with the youths as they say yeah oh very very good points and you talk about the viewership being all over the world it's not like twitch caters to the most conservative level that it can find in the world right. and then sets the rules there it, it, you know there is some balance there um and it's funny being in the uk we kind of sit in the middle we've traditionally looked at america and gone oh they're a bit prudish about that and then we look at mainland europe as being much more open to display in the human body without the default setting of being to sexualize it so i remember in the 80s and 90s we'd see tv if we went to europe and there'd be say shampoo commercials and there'd be a naked woman in them and for that for us british oh that was very raunchy <laughs> what's that doing on daytime tv you know um and then we'd also over time we'd get our own edgier outlets such as channel four came on the scene where british lines would be crossed but only really after the watershed which was 9 p.m so 
I can't sit here and say we grew up with 24-7 nudity on our TVs in the UK, but um, there's also, we see some irony, and I think people in mainland Europe also see a little bit of irony when you jump to that argument with the US of, well, they seem to have these rules about nudity and nipples, but then on the other hand, they have these other rules about gun ownership, which seem slightly hypocritical. And it is a big can of worms to open. I don't want to go too far down that road, John. But we do see some irony in that, um, especially when it comes to sort of automatic weapons and violence on the television and things like that. Is my perception correct from the outside looking in, or is that a gross, gross simplification of U.S. culture? Well, of, of course it is. I mean, of course it, yeah. it's that the, the people craft the narrative that makes them feel good about their own culture. You know, so if you're if you're over there sitting in Europe, you can say, oh, you know, our, our event got banned by this horrible U.S. company because we violated their terms of service and they've got tons of guns and they shoot each other. And, you know, we rule. And yeah, awesome. You know, <laughs> congratulations. Um, you know, to say that the United States as a country is not sensitive to the gun violence epidemic that we deal in with, you know, every day in this country is, I, I would say, at the very least, is, is, is inaccurate, to say the least. Um, but as, as you say, that's a can of worms that, that really doesn't belong in this discussion, in my opinion. Um, we can we can talk about that some, some other time. But getting back to the story, the actual story about revision, um, my question is, you know, when you host a show that revolves around the demo scene, let's not forget where the demo scene started. The demo scene was pioneered by a bunch of adolescent boys who were essentially trying to impress their friends who were other adolescent boys by being edgy, by being cool. You know, you've seen a bunch of demos and crack screens. You see, you know, the content that, that's on there. Why would you even bother to go with a streaming service with the tightest controls on content? I mean, why would you even think to go with Twitch knowing how easily people are banned from their platform? Why not just go from a European-based platform with looser range from the get-go yeah i mean i wasn't surprised that they went with twitch and they did they went with twitch last year as well without problems mm -hmm. because that's where the potentially the biggest audience sure is, and, they want and, and again see. and again that is the trade-off the trade-off is that you you have this huge worldwide audience that you know people can stumble upon your feed but you have to play by the rules of the game yeah and um, what did surprise me when it went down was that there wasn't a plan B. Mm -hmm. I thought it would just be a no-brainer, have a plan B ready for, not if, but when Twitch bans that party, because for the reasons you've mentioned, it was gonna happen. It was always gonna happen. So thankfully, the Chaos Computer Club stepped up and got them up and running. The debate of culture, it, it's one that will rumble on, I'm sure. Uh, the stance of the demo scene is that, um, pretty much that rules are bad outside of their own competition rules. Mm -hmm. They don't like to be constrained. They don't like to be told what to do and they like absolute creative freedom. And so they should. And so they should be on a platform that allows that. And hopefully they found one now in the Chaos Computer Club and we can see them on there again next year. And we are massively grateful to them for um, enabling us to continue to watch the party. And on these topics, this cultural debate, I'd love to hear the viewers thoughts and feelings about it now that the dust has started to settle a bit and uh, we've had time to think about why this happened on twitch to revision share your comments i'd love to hear them so neil last week's community question of the week was what video game art or music would you like to put in a museum for all to enjoy 
Now, I imagine we've got lots of answers, John. Well, <laughs> Neil, I, I messed up. I forgot to post last week's community question of the week on the subreddit. I was wondering why we kept getting all kinds of responses from last week's community question of the week. <laughs> so that's my fault. I messed up. My bad. Uh, so instead, Neil, we're going to come back with a new community question of the week this week. I think this is a good one. I think we're going to get a lot of responses. And I promise you, I promise, dear listener, that I will post this question on the subreddit. What is it, Neil? So this week's community question of the week is, what do you think is the most valuable British video game? Please post your responses on the show subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on next week's show. And no cheating and upvoting and getting your friends to upvote your own answer, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.